This is Atul Minocha, author of Lies, Damn Lies, and Marketing, Separate Fact from Friction and Drive Growth. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Atul Minosha to talk about his new book, Lies, Damn Lies, and Marketing, Separate Fact from Fiction and Drive Growth, published by Lioncrest. Atul Minosha is a partner at Chief Outsiders, a marketing consulting firm that helps CEOs accelerate growth through strategic planning, customer insight, and disciplined execution of well-crafted marketing plans. With experience in startups and Fortune 500 companies like Honeywell, Kodak, and Toyota, Atul works in a wide range of industries from automotive and healthcare to industrial goods and technology. Atul has a degree in mechanical engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi, and an MBA from Yale University. He's a professor at the Holt International Business School, a mentor, and an angel investor with Sierra Angels, a Vistage speaker, and a Forbes contributor. And, interesting fact, he's a big Pink Floyd fan. Atul, congratulations on Lies, Damn Lies, and Marketing, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Great to be here, Douglas. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. So, Atul, I do a lot of research for each of these interviews. I, I read the book, of course, but then I do the really important uh, research. And I noticed that Sierra Angels, which is Nevada's premier angel investment group based in North Lake Tahoe, they're right next to Lupita's Mexican restaurant. And I was just wondering, before you all decide which startups to invest in, do you go load up on margaritas at Lupita's and then come back? We don't, but... <laughs> You, I must congratulate you because Lupita's is one of my favorite places. In fact, uh, I live about 30 miles from there and uh, there are probably 15 other restaurants, Mexican restaurants that are closer to me. But if I had to go for a Mexican Mexican meal, that's where I drive up to. Excellent. Well, and I don't want to, you know, tell you how to how to invest in startups, but I think that, you know, you guys might just want to get a picture of margaritas from Lupita's and, you know. I'm going to ta- take it to our management. They're very, and, uh, thank you. I appreciate do, that. I have a feeling that our, our entrepreneurs are going to appreciate it because I think cash may be flowing more freely after <laughs> yes, that. Yes. And to all those uh, entrepreneurs looking for investment funds, you're welcome. Okay. So about the book, as soon as I saw the title, uh, lies, damn lies, and marketing. I immediately brought to mind the quote from Mark Twain, as it did for many other people that know that I'm going to be interviewing you. And 
he, he said that there were three kinds of liars, uh, liars, damned liars, and statisticians. And like many famous quotes, the origin of it is now disputed. And I think I read that it may have actually been first said by the British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, but I think it was Twain that that made it uh, so well known. And I just got to say, I loved this book. It it got me so excited, and I'll explain why. <laughs> um, it reminded me, in a certain way, of a book that was on the podcast about a year ago by Grant Leboff. His book is called The Myths of Marketing, and I'll include a link to that episode in your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. But he had about 28 chapters, and he was piercing one myth after another about marketing. And I, you know, in the line of work, as are you, where I'm constantly having to explain <laughs> or, or correct a lot of myths out there. And it, it, I, I feel like I was taking Zoolander crazy pills sometimes because I, I hear these things and I, it, 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 it worries me. It worries me. I even had a conversation this week with somebody about this. This book, as well as Grant's, it was like a, it's like I'd entered a support group. <laughs> so maybe I should set one up with you and me and Grant, but it was it was absolutely terrific. And I think this book is a great book for CEOs, heads of sales, uh, you know, CFOs, and really anyone who supervises marketers or who aren't necessarily in marketing. But it's even better for marketers who are looking for ways to help their companies better understand what marketing is and how it can help their company grow. And I sense that you must deal with a lot of CEOs, and this seemed like such a great book for them to pick up on a flight. It's not a long book, and read. And what was so interesting to me is which topics you covered, and I think they're really very, very important. I do have to wonder, though, there was a, or I wanted to offer a suggestion, or maybe another free idea like Margarita's at Lupita's, but Martin Lindstrom was on the podcast at the beginning of this year, and his book is called The Ministry of Common Sense. And he has a program <laughs> where there are so many people that want their CEOs to read the book, but they don't want to send it to him. So he has a program where you can buy the book from him, and he'll send it anonymously <laughs> to a CEO that needs to read the book. And I was just thinking, wow, Atul, you may actually have people come to you and say, I, I want my CEO to read this, but I, I don't want to get caught sending it to her or him. <laughs> so just another idea there. You know, there's, there's no charge for these ideas. So I wanted to start with uh, a couple of quotes from the book and, and get into it. The first is from uh, page 11. Uh, in the introduction. And you write, has your marketing team ever left you feeling disappointed? Maybe they made promises that they didn't or couldn't keep or worse. Maybe it seems like they willfully misled and lied to you. Of course you felt like this. I'm guessing it's at least in part why you're reading this book. <laughs> like most CEOs and business leaders, you've probably been burned by bad experiences with marketing. Maybe you've begun to suspect that your chief marketing officer, CMO, and the marketing team have been taking you for a ride with their lies and damn lies, as Mark Twain might have put it. As a result, you might even be wondering if you should simply avoid the problem altogether by eliminating or at least minimizing the role of marketing. If you felt this way, you're not alone in questioning the value of marketing. Let's suppose you're in a boat with your entire C-suite and the boat starts to sink. To stay afloat, you realize you'll have to throw someone overboard. Who's going first? <laughs> Certainly not the CFO. You'll keep the CFO to the bitter end. No, chances are the CMO is getting tossed before anyone else. Good luck, buddy. Hope you can swim. If someone has to go overboard, it might as well be the person whose contribution is unclear. While this frustration is common, you can't just abandon marketing because of bad experiences or disappointing results. That's like saying, I got shampoo in my eyes and it really stung, so I no longer believe washing my hair is good for me. <laughs> 
<laughs> Marketing can't and shouldn't be avoided. Doing so will only lead to a whole host of problems and significant underperformance. Every year, a New York-based market intelligence and business analytics company named CB Insights conducts a study of private companies that have closed shop in the previous 12 months, analyzing the factors that contributed to their failure. Let's take a look at what they have identified as the top 10 reasons well-funded companies fail. See if you notice a recurring theme. And then on this page, you've got a graph, and I'll explain. It's uh, Basically, you're saying that eight out of top 10 reasons for failure can be avoided with good marketing. And the, the, the biggest one at 42% was no market need. And then the next two at around 25% were out of cash and team issues. And then the following seven, where each one was between 13 and 19%, were got outcompeted, pricing cost issues, which we're going to talk about, a weak business model, user unfriendly, ignored customers, poor marketing, and product mistime. And uh, you write that, as you can see, eight of the top 10 reasons for failure could have been addressed by better and timelier marketing. Everything, in fact, except for out of cash and team issues, which I mentioned. In other words, if these companies had just executed their marketing well, they might have overcome major challenges and survived. The takeaway, underestimate the value and capabilities of the marketing function at your own peril. At minimum, marketing done well can improve your business performance. Often it stands between success and utter failure. And then, if you don't mind, because I love your book so much, I, I want to continue a little bit. So, so why is there such a disconnect between what marketing can do and how you currently feel about it? Keep reading, and you'll understand why this gap exists, why your reason for feeling frustrated, underwhelmed, or disappointed are real. The value that great marketing provides is just as real. And then I want to jump over quickly to page 20. What you'll get from this book I promise to do two things for you. First, il with illustrative examples and reasoning, I will give you the insight you need to spot the leaky holes draining your marketing dollars. I will help you understand what marketing is, what it can do for you, and just as important, what it can't do. We will also examine some specific ways it is often misused and abused, leading to the frustrations you are likely familiar with. Second, after you've spotted these holes, I will reveal what you can do to plug them using more effective marketing that delivers the results you've been seeking. Based on my years of research, experience, and battle scars obtained in a cross-section of industries, I'll provide some best practices for making marketing effective for you, your team, and your business. In short, you'll learn how to separate lies and damn lies from the real and effective marketing. And by the time you finish the book, you'll have a much better understanding of how to leverage marketing for maximum advantage and how to work seamlessly with your marketing team while avoiding many common pitfalls. Armed with this knowledge, you'll know if anyone tries to take you for a ride with their less than optimal marketing ideas. And more than that, you'll have a much better understanding of the tools and techniques available for you to maximize the return on your marketing dollars and grow your business. Now, I want to just read one other quick part, and it has a little bit to do with you. As I said, you uh, have an engineering background, and I think it's very important, very significant. And I'm going to mention that again. But you say on page 14, the fact is many CEOs are data nerds, just like I was, and in many ways still am. This convergence of hard data with customer behavior may not be obvious, which can make marketing seem almost counterintuitive. So if you're spending money like crazy on marketing and getting little or nothing in return, what is the source of the problem? Is your CMO incompetent, dishonest, a con artist? Probably not. Actually, in most cases, there are possibly one or two contributing factors. So, Atul, can you talk about those contributing factors? You talk about omission and commission. It was very interesting. Yeah. So, uh, thank you for uh, for actually giving the re listeners uh, 
readout of the introduction, and I think it sets the stage for the book. So thank you for doing that. Let me answer the question that you asked as to what are the contributing factors that lead to this kind of disconnect. Yeah. Um, one is that the CEOs have an incomplete understanding of what marketing can and should do. So that's sort of one, one set of things. And then they may have had previous experiences. The second set of contributing factors, actually, um, if, if, if there's any attribution to be given, it'll probably go into the marketing side, the CMO or the marketing director or whoever is, is doing this. And that is that uh, either they sometimes they don't, they're, they're not very experienced, so they may have only seen one side of marketing and therefore they, may, they, may, they genuinely may not know everything that they ought to know about marketing just because they are, you know, they have only 10 years experience as opposed to 35. But it could also be, which is actually where the term lies and damn lies comes, and uh, <laughs> is that, that the marketeer may know everything he or she ought to know, but they also feel that they have to promise more than what they can deliver because unless they promise that, the CEO will uh, will fire them or will never hire them or, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to look like an idiot in the leadership team meeting because I'm the only one who comes across as a naysayer. No, sorry, we cannot do this. Um, so, so I think marketing people can often get sucked into overcommitting either because they don't know any better or because they know a lot and they feel that that's the only way to stay, uh, stay at the table. Right. So you... Right. Now, I, once again, you have an, you're an engineer. You have engineering background, and your marketing career began <laughs> when you were dragged, kicking and screaming into marketing. <laughs> Tell us what That's happened. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, as a kid growing up, I was interested in designing cars and uh, decided to join IIT or the Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi, to do my mechanical engineering. I chose mechanical over electronics or electrical because, heck, I wanted to design cars. And and during those days, cars were mostly made of iron. There weren't too many semiconductors in there. Um, I was very fortunate that upon graduation, I was hired by Toyota for their India project. They were not making anything in India at that time, and they were planning to make uh, a pickup truck, a Toyota pickup truck in India. So I was the 19th employee in that project group. And uh, the CEO welcomed me on the on the first day and said, well, welcome, and uh, we're going to put you in marketing. You are the second person in marketing. We have one person that you will report to, and that now the two of you form the marketing department in this group of 19. And the CEO himself, he was in his, uh, I think, late 60s at that time. Uh, he was a mechanical engineer himself and a practicing mechanical engineer. So he understood my uh, my protest that I gave him that, hey, I spent five years doing engineering and I want to be an engineer and blah, blah, blah. Uh, why are you shoving me into marketing? In fact, I even went on to say that, in my view, marketing and salespeople are charlatans. I mean, they got their hands in other people's pocket. I don't want to be that person. Please, please, please don't do that to me. You probably felt and like you lost a bet. <laughs> no, and actually, the, inter the interesting thing is the CEO, he was very sympathetic because he himself was an engineer and he probably had even a stronger view, a uh, stronger low view on sales and marketing types. Okay. Ah. Mm -hmm. so, 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 so he could, he had that smile. Now, oh, yeah, I know exactly how you feel. I feel the same way. Uh, but he said, well, we got six engineers. 
and I have only one marketeer. I need marketing help. So we are putting you in marketing. But he also promised um, that in a couple of years when they were going to really put the organization together, if I wanted to go back into engineering, he'll, he'll, uh, he'll give me that choice. So off I went uh, and said, okay, at least I'm in the right spot. At least I'm at Toyota, which is the world's best company. And I'm just starting out. So heck, why not? Let's start with marketing. That's how I started my career in marketing. And then you got bitten by the bug and you, you stayed in marketing. I got bitten by the bug in the very first project. I think it was month two or month three that uh, I, I, I knew in the back of my head and the bottom of my heart that I think this is going to work out and I'm <laughs> going to stick around in marketing. Uh huh. So you are originally from India, obviously, and uh, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, and you've, you've written a marketing book. So it's my understanding that it's required by law that you include the Indian parable of the five blind men and the elephant. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. law. that's the law. If you didn't do that, you'd, you'd be in trouble. So tell us uh, that parable and why it is so beautifully uh, included as it relates to the perception of marketing. Yeah, no, and I would have included that parable even if it wasn't required by law because I think it makes perfect sense in describing the challenge marketeers have when they're dealing with people who are uh, who are not schooled in marketing. In other words, let's say you're a marketeer and you're talking to the CEO mm -hmm. uh, who is not from the marketing field. Let's say like the like the CEO at, when you started at Toyota, a mechanical engineer in his sixties. Yes, mm -hmm. and yes, exactly right, and and. CEOs come from different backgrounds, right? And, and some of them do come from marketing, but in most engineering firms, they're usually not from marketing. I mean, if you're a P&G CEO, chances are that you came from marketing. But if you are a Honeywell CEO uh, or a General Electric CEO, you're likely not to have come from marketing. You may have spent some time in marketing, but that's not where you spent most of your career. So, what I found in my dealing with different CEOs and presidents, both at Fortune 500 as well as small to mid-sized companies, was that CEOs have an incomplete understanding of marketing. So they, what they know about marketing is not wrong. In fact, it is correct. But it's only maybe 20% or 30% of what marketing is or should be. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, at any uh, setting, if I ran into uh, at any uh, networking event, let's say if I was talking to a CEO that I haven't met before, and you know, we sort of are over a glass of wine, we are learning about each other. And uh, once they discover that I do marketing, they say, "Yeah, I'll I'll call you when we do a website, or you know, when we are talking about SEO, mm -hmm. that's that's when I'll call you." Mm -hmm. And yes, marketing does websites. Yes, marketing does SEO, but we do a whole lot more. And it was became pretty obvious to me that the parable of five blind men describing an elephant is very, very appropriate because different CEOs, based on their own history and experience and education, were describing marketing in a very narrow and limited sense, mm -hmm. as opposed to describing the, the, the whole elephant. Right. And we should explain that these five blind men walk up to this elephant and they feel different parts of the elephant. So in other words, one person grabs the, the leg and says, oh, this is like a tree. And another person grabs the, uh, the, or touches the side of the elephant and thinks, oh, so this is, it's like a wall. And another person grabs the, another man grabs the tail and says, oh, it's, uh, it's like a rope. And another person grabs the trunk of the elephant and says, oh, it's like a snake. 
So none of them were wrong. It was just a limited view. And that's why it's such Correct. a great uh, parable to include. And I was just kidding about being required by law. I, I've got lawyers on staff here. They'll, they'll, they'll take care of you. So <laughs> you, have, you have to use them since you're paying them. Yes, that's right. That's right. So let's get the most basic question out of the way, though, um, which is one I guess you probably answer all the time. I certainly do when I'm talking to civilians. And when I say civilians, I mean non-marketers. What, what is marketing and what does it have to do with bridges? That's a, another great analogy you've got in the book. Yeah, so... When I think of bridge as an analogy, uh, let me back up. If you are in business, if you have a business, you make something or you provide some kind of a service. To whom do you sell? To whom do you provide the service? Well, that's another group of customers or potential customers. So I see marketing as that bridge linking these two things, the business and the world of customers. And the reason I use the analogy of bridge, and I think I mentioned that in the book, that it's a two-way bridge, as most bridges are. Don't think of bridge as something that, okay, I'm the company, therefore I need to tell people in the outside world, in the real world, as you might say, of how good I am or how good my product is and why you should buy and blah, blah, blah. No, you need to start by first learning about your customer and what their pain points are, what their fears are, what their needs are, and what their wants are. And then make that product or service and then go out and tell them how good you are and how good that product and service is and how it will help them. That's the Mm -hmm. the final part. So that's why I think bridge is a good analogy that it needs to be a two-way bridge. And it really starts from first learning about your customer. It's great advice, and it's uh, it's a it's an analogy I'm going to be stealing as I continue to deal with my crazy pill issues. You're right; it's not just for communicating the value that you deliver through your products and services. It also needs to function as your conduit for learning about your customers, potential customers, competitors, and the entire marketplace. Um, so, another topic that you just hit head on at the beginning here, and you you write that many business leaders run into trouble when they confuse and conflate sales with marketing. So once and for all, could you explain the the difference, your difference between sales and marketing and and perhaps what it has to do with the headlights on your car? Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, as, you had to include a car, you, didn't you, Atul? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because that's, that, that's where my roots are, right? Yeah. So the good news is that most people use the phrase sales and marketing without letting any breath come between them. So in other words, it's sort of one phrase, sales and marketing, which speaks to the point that they realize how the two need to be aligned. The problem is that often many people conflate the two or sort of think of them as sort of one long title to one function. No, it's they are two different functions. You can, yes, they should be sitting next to each other. Yes, they should be talking to each other. Yes, they should really know about each other, but they are two separate functions. And another analogy that I came up with, which you alluded to, was this uh, car headlights. So every good car has headlights, right? And the headlights have two different levels. There's a, you know, there's a low beam or the low lights, uh, and then there's a full beam or the brights, which is the high beam. A good car, a good functioning car, will have both of them working well. Why? Because you need both of them at different points in time. So you need to be able to see what's immediately ahead of your car, let's say in the next 30, 40 feet, so that you can 
go where you're going, but you also often need to see what's a quarter mile away or what's 200 yards away. And that's where the brights come in. So sales is interested in selling today, tomorrow, next week, next month, this quarter. That's what they should be doing. That's mm-hmm. what they're tasked to do. That's what's going to keep the company afloat. So that's a good function. That's what they focus on. Marketing, on the other hand, needs to focus on what should the company be making two years from now? Where else can the company go to get uh, get different set of customers that they haven't tapped into? And that is a more distant outlook. Uh, that's That requires a little bit more distant outlook. And therefore, marketing has uh, is what I call that sort of the high beam responsibility in a car. Yes. And I had never seen that analogy before, and I loved it. And so you write, in the clearest terms, sales is focused on the present or the near term, while marketing is focused on the future or the long term. In other words, sales is about trying to get customers to purchase what is in your inventory today, while marketing is about trying to figure out what you should have in your inventory tomorrow and generating interest in that future sale. Sales is about closing a transaction fast, while marketing is about persuading your potential customers and making the job of sales easier. So uh, moving on, uh, on page 31 and 33 of the book, you have these two graphics that honestly are worth the price of the book. And this isn't an expensive book. <laughs> so, and I want to talk about that and explain the first one, which is the this concept of big M and small M in marketing. And looking back, you know, as an agency guy, I can think of so many times, and in fact, I just got a call today from a, a company that needs some help and they want to jump straight to the small M. And whenever we've had to do that or when anyone does it, if they haven't done the big M, it's a problem. So please explain these two. And I should also add that on this chart, and I actually took a picture of it. I'll include it on your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. But it says, uh, unless you do these things and get them right, which is big M, under small M, you'll continue to waste at least 50% of your marketing spend. So please, big M, small M, tell us what it is. Yeah, so you know, the, the, I start with the, the quote, uh, the last quote that you mentioned. I don't remember who it was, but it was some some British advertising giant, sixty, seventy years ago, who came up with this saying that you know, I know half of my marketing dollars are wasted. The only problem is I don't know which half. Oh, so, that was well. It's attributed mostly to John Wanamaker, the American uh, retailer in Philadelphia. I hear that all the time. Yeah. Have you talked to anybody in the British Isles? I think they'll probably say it's a British guy who said this but anyway that's that's for you to research douglas hey um, i gave i gave my props to benjamin disraeli here so i'm you know. <laughs> yes yeah that's true that's true so anyway getting to the point here most of the marketing that we as consumers or even as company people get to spend money on or get to see or get to experience is what i'm calling small m marketing so that's real marketing you know website advertising trade shows brochures billboards radio spots, logos, logos, webinars, all of that is good marketing, but it all goes into small M marketing. Right. And it's actually what you're going to spend more time on. That's where you spend most of your time on. That's where you spend most of your budget on. And that's how it should be. So I'm not here arguing that reduce that and, you know, level the playing field and spend more time or money on big M. I'm saying, no, that's where it should go. I'm simply suggesting that, 
to make sure that you get full ROI on your small M marketing spend. So in other words, instead of uh, wasting half of your marketing dollars, you waste only 10% of your marketing dollars or 5% of your marketing dollars. The only way to ensure that is that you should take some of your money and do what I call big M marketing, some of the more foundational work, deciding who your customers ought to be, deciding and learning about them as to what their pain points are, how you should message them. And when it comes to messaging, one of the common mistakes B2B companies make is that they say, well, we are talking to data nerds, we are talking to engineers, we are talking to PhDs. So let's give them five pages of reports and you know data and all that, and they'll, they'll be impressed. Usually that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And then if it doesn't work that way, what do we do? We ship them five more pages of more data. <laughs> right. Uh, so all that, you have to sort of get away from all that and do the big M marketing stuff and figure out what the customer pain points are. And usually you can convince somebody that they should be buying your product or service by telling them just three things about your product, three things about how your product or your service will make their life, your potential customer's life easier and better. That's all it takes. You don't need pages and pages of data and comparisons and whatnot. Right. So big M is strategic and small M is tactical and they're very important. Uh, just like peanut butter and chocolate. They, they, they work really well together. And under big M, it's uh, what you call insights, which is like you know our why and company and customer and competition. Uh, and the strategy is like your, your segmentation and your the design of your products or services and how you're differentiating yourself and positioning yourself and pricing, which we're going to talk about, and, and even your messaging, which you just mentioned, and the execution or all the things that you just mentioned there. It just seems like the majority of companies, uh, and in my experience, they want to jump straight to that. And you even have a story in here. If we have time, I'll, I'll ask you to talk about that. But let's just go just a little bit further into the uh, small M. And you actually divide small M into two areas, which is just so helpful. And again, this is all the tactical things that are so important. And you have what you call short-term diminishing returns and long-term and scalable. So can you explain the difference of those two? Uh, this is the second chart that I mentioned. The activities that make an immediate short-term impact and then the activities that take time to make an impact. Mm -hmm. I'll give you two examples from that, uh, from uh, those two different categories. So think of... Uh coming up with a new company name or a company logo. The moment you, assuming that it's done well and generally it's well received, mm -hmm. uh, chances are that as soon as you make that change, you come out with a new logo or a new tagline or even a company name, you'll get positive feedback from your customers and your prospects and they'll notice you. But guess what? Three months, four months from now, they'll take that as a given. I mean, they're not going to, you're not going to receive any more compliments for the thousands of dollars you spent on developing a new logo. You got that bang for that buck six months ago when you launched that, that logo. So in other words, that had a short term, but a very diminishing kind of return on that dollar. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but recognize that that's the return you're going to get. You're going to, it's a one-time deal. On the other hand, a good example of where you you might get benefits in the long term, but you'll certainly not notice any benefit in the short term is, um, is SEO. I tell my clients that, uh, and of course, you know, you can have good SEO firms and bad SEO firms, but I tell my clients very honestly that the problem with SEO firms is that you will not know 
if they are good or bad for at least nine months. Why? Because whatever they do, good or bad, will show up in your results or not show up in your results. It'll take nine months to uh, to germinate. So you have to be very careful in who you choose, who you choose, and uh, make sure that. You you come with good recommendations and you interview them well and all that. So those, that's an example of, of things which will not show up in the first month, two or three, but you'll have to wait for, for the effects to show. And then th- those are usually scalable effects because a good SEO work will give you dividends for, for months, if not years. Mm-hmm. It, the thing that I like so much about this is it helps to manage expectations so people can mm-hmm. see what's, what's going to happen there. Um, and I think of it as like planting crops or uh, fruit trees exactly. or an orchard or something like that. Yep. <laughs> once, you, once it gets going, it can be uh, uh, an enormous competitive advantage. Uh, you're, you're, like, you're building a, a trench around your company, particularly as it relates to uh, content. Now, let's go a little bit into big M marketing. And what was so interesting to me is that at the beginning of this book, you talk about uh, this idea of emotions. And I just, I'm sorry, but I have to remind the listener, we're talking to an engineer here, okay? <laughs> so you write that good marketing isn't just about finding more people to reach or how efficiently you're reaching them. It's also about how strongly you're impacting your audience on an emotional level, and that's not a data point you can readily track. Explain why you have an entire chapter on this so early in the book. Yeah, and I think it's a very important piece, uh, especially as it relates to B2B companies. B2C companies usually recognize the importance of emotions that they need to sort of influence in their customers. But B2B companies either ignore that or willfully choose to stay away from it. So, I mean, you, you mentioned my interest in Pink Floyd. So, yes, as an engineer, my engineer friends think think that I've gone to the dark side. Uh, <laughs> I actually think that I've... They're actually, probably very suspicious of you. Yeah, yeah. But um, Poor Atul. Really, you know, he seemed like <laughs> such a good guy. <laughs> yeah. What, what got happened? into him? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the truth is that all of us, whether we are nerds, whether we are PhDs in engineering or whatever we are, we have emotions. We may, we may be in denial, but we have emotions. And this is something, frankly, I actually discovered this from first-hand experience. I'll give you a short story, which I haven't mentioned in the book. So this is a little outside the scope, but actually in scope because it's very relevant. So 30 years ago, 25 years ago, whenever I bought a car, I would create a spreadsheet, okay? I'm, I'll have my five different models that I'm considering. What's the engine horsepower? What's the torque? What's the, you know, what brake pads are they using? Or what kind of suspension they have? I'll have a comparison thing. And I'll make my choice and then feel very good about it. Then later on, I realized that, you know, before I created the spreadsheet, I pretty much knew which one I wanted to get. I was simply doctoring the spreadsheet, <laughs> to help me feel rational about the decision that I already made. Exactly. So that's now, for the last 20 years, the cars I have bought, there's no spreadsheet associated with them. I know what I want. If it looks good, if it's got the right color, I've already done enough research from experience that you know I make sure that it's either well-reputed companies and all that. But I don't have to know uh, what torque and what engine horsepower because heck, even though I'm an engineer from a premier institute, I cannot match 
10,000 engineers at Mercedes or BMW or Honda or Toyota. So who am I to think that I'll do my spreadsheet analysis and say, oh, you know, this is better than that. I have to trust them. And I should go by what I know about me, which is what colors I like, if I like this shape or not. And that's how I make my choices. And I, I would suggest that in the B2B world, you still have to, of course, give them data. They're not going to choose based on the color of your product or the box it comes in. But you first have to open the door using emotions. Yes. You know, it uh, reminds me, I can't remember which book, but there was some uh, other book where they were talking about this very same thing with emotions and, and, and the dealing with uh, you know the, the technical buyer and that type of thing. And you think they're all like Mr. Spock, which they're not. Yep. Engineers have feelings. I know that. Exactly. Uh, yep. And they were at a talk and they said, okay, um, you, you put all this in a spreadsheet. Of course, the, he was talking to engineers and said, so, so when you selected your wife, did you include her in a spreadsheet along with all the other candidates <laughs> for who you were going to marry? And that kind of won them over. They started to realize, oh, yes, I see. I guess maybe I do have a, a, a emotions. The other thing that came to mind is that I've often heard, uh, you know, our subconscious brain is much more powerful and is probably driving over 99% of all decisions we make. And the conscious part of our brain is much slower and actually much newer. And basically, the conscious part of our brain is the PR department for what the <laughs> subconscious brain has That's already... That's a good way to say it. Yeah, and it's exactly what you were just describing. It was like yeah. you were trying to rationalize what your emotions had already told you to do. So Yeah, I think there's a quote in the book... Um, from Jeff Bezos, I'm forgetting which chapter or what page number it's on. Uh, Jeff Bezos actually has is well known to say this. I mean, of course, we all think of Jeff Bezos as a nerd and you know, hard charging um, business leader. But there's a quote he has often used. He says that whenever whenever his instincts and data analysis don't match, he sends his team to take another look at the data analysis. So in other words, his he. He doesn't sort of say, oh, well, you know, intuition versus data. Of course, data always wins. No, he wants to cross-check the data because his feeling is that his intuition is probably more right than what data analysis might be showing. So even a, even a so-called data nerd, I think, recognizes the value of intuition and his instincts. Yes, and you talked about how he says, I, just go back and reverse engineer starting with the customer. Yep. which is it's it's brilliant and also you talk in this book which I've I've seen elsewhere that he always wants an extra empty chair in the room yes. to remind everybody that that's the customer and yep. I've heard that invariably he'll point at the chair and say hey you're forgetting about somebody mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then as people prepare for meetings with the boss they'll say oh wait a minute forgot about the customer. You know, he's going to point at that damn chair during the meeting. Oh, we <laughs> yes. need to rethink this. So even a big company has trouble keeping a uh, focus on the um, on the customer. So I want to go to uh, page 63. I love this. And again, I, I'm just picking out the things that I've experienced as well. And uh, the chapter is, it's all digital now. And you write, I was, uh, it, it was a class of new marketing students, and I was teaching them about various marketing channels in both digital and traditional media. As we approached the halfway point, a young, bright-eyed student in front row raised his hand. Sir, why don't we cut to the chase and just focus on digital marketing, he asked. After all, it's all digital now. <laughs> what was your reaction, Professor? 
Yeah, so uh, I probably rolled my eyes or tried my best not to roll my eyes. <laughs> or bit your tongue, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I went on to explain that to me, and obviously to the students, it should be this way, that digital is just another channel. And the example I gave was that if if I, if I if we want to treat digital this way, uh, you want to learn only about digital and forget about marketing in general, in other words, his, his question was, why don't we just learn about Google Analytics and, you know, how do we place Facebook ads and how much we should spend and blah, blah, blah. Those kinds of uh, digital kind of questions or the SEO kind of questions. So what I was telling him was that, look, if digital is as important as you think it is right now and you want us to focus on that, back when I was at my MBA school, we would have spent, my marketing professor would have spent a lot of time telling me about the printing press. <laughs> Why? Because that was another channel. Mm-hmm. I would have learned all about the different weights of uh, p- different types of paper and what ink goes where and is it offset printing or is it silk printing or, you know, all those kinds of things. And I said, I spent zero hours on that as an MBA student. Why? Because we can always outsource that to somebody else. Yes, there are people who should know about the paper weights and whatnot, but I, as a marketeer, don't need to know that. I just need to know that, yes, I can print a brochure or I can print um, a billboard. So my point here was that treat digital as a useful channel, but don't think of it as, as a silver bullet in marketing that's going to solve everything for you. So you still need to learn about what drives somebody's behavior to buy or not buy. In fact, one one uh, analogy or one sort of pithy phrase I use is that we should focus not just on the computer clicks, you know, how people are going to come and click and how much time are they going to spend, but we should also focus on the mind click. What's going to click in someone's mind? Mm. And the two have to be balanced. Yes, you have to focus on the computer clicks, but you also have to focus on what will click in somebody's mind. Yes, and there's a great quote on page 68. If you only focus on digital under the mistaken belief that it's all digital now, you might miss out on some excellent marketing opportunities that traditional media offers, especially considering the fact that there's a lot less noise in the traditional ad space these days. This has probably never been a better time for direct mail if used in the correct context, because everyone seems to have said, oh, no, we don't want to do any print anymore. We don't We don't want to do that. But it, it, it's actually a really good for... Uh, communicating with current customers. So I want to jump ahead to another one, which I mentioned earlier, and I want to read this. uh, This is a chapter six. It's about pricing. Pricing, okay? A study conducted a few years ago analyzed the impact of five operating levers on the bottom line of any business. Price, revenue, cost of goods sold, selling, general administrative expenses, and research and development. Specifically, researchers were trying to understand how each of these independently impacts the overall profitability of an organization. The study concluded that a change in pricing makes the biggest impact on the bottom line. So, Atul, who tends to make the pricing decision at companies and who should be making the pricing decisions? Very good question. And my experience both in corporate world and in the small to medium-sized consulting world, is that it could be anyone, but usually it's not the marketing department. Mm-hmm. It's either the CFO or the CEO um, that'll make the pricing decision. And usually or marketing sales. does not... 
or, or, or even sales, yeah, right. uh, but not but not marketing. And that's exactly who should be making the marketing decisions. I mean, my book talks about all the reasons why a CFO is, has, again, got only incomplete view of how the market might behave with the pricing change. Sales also has an incomplete view and it also has a vested interest to meet their sales quota. So in many ways, marketing has both sides a good marketing person will understand what the costs are and will also understand what might or how might the customer behave based on the pricing change. And therefore, I believe the marketing person is in the best position to make the best pricing decisions. Yeah, so the CFO may not be as aware of the competition like the marketing and sales folks would be. And then the sales folks might actually be focusing more on revenue or simply closing business and not necessarily closing profitable business. So exactly. it's, if you are a marketer and you are involved in pricing decisions, you're a real marketer. <laughs> and it's funny because sometimes I'll talk to companies and I'll hear them say, you know, we've grown this uh, business uh, over the last 25 years and we haven't done a bit of marketing. And I think you, you and I know what, what they mean by that. They haven't done any promotion or paid promotion, yes. let's say. And I'll say, well, interesting. Talk to me about how you price your products, and they'll explain how, what's involved in that and how they look at the competition and the cost of goods sold, all that sort of thing. And then I'll say, now, how do you determine what kind of products to offer or modifications to your product? And they'll explain all that, and I'll say, well, that's marketing. <laughs> You've been doing marketing, and you didn't even realize it because there's you know, back to the four Ps that everyone's heard of, you know, product, price, uh place or distribution, and then the promotion. So that's really very important, and I don't see that in a whole lot of the books that I've read. Okay, so again, you're an engineer. There's a recurring theme here. I hope I've established that I'm talking to a real-life engineer. And I'm sure you studied physics, okay? So let's talk about physics and the speed of light, okay? (laughs) Okay. So explain the difference between speed and velocity and why speed alone (laughs) can very often kill a business. Yeah, uh, this is one of those uh, one of those occasions, uh, one of the many occasions actually, where I felt that my uh, schooling in physics and engineering was actually a plus in marketing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I see so, a lot of. I've actually interviewed authors who've written marketing or sales books. They have engineering backgrounds. Yeah, it's, it's, I see more and more of that actually. Yeah. So, so uh, one of the things that I discovered. Uh, earlier on, and it has been true all the way up till today, is that I yet to meet a CEO or yet to meet a business leader who didn't want to do things fast. You know, nobody ever said, oh, yeah, let's go slow. Why bother doing it today? Because we can do it next week. I never heard that. So speed is very important to anybody who is in business. Frankly, speed is very important to me as well. But what I discovered was that most people will go for speed at the expense of figuring out in what direction they should go into. (laughs) Okay? So, yeah, I want to go fast. I don't know where, but I want to go fast. So, the best analogy that I could come up with was to dig into my physics history back from my high school days where my professor or my school teacher told me that speed has only one component, which is how fast you're going, and velocity has two components, how fast you're going, which is speed, but also the direction. What direction are you going? So my argument in chapter seven is that speed alone will kill, and 
you, if you want to go fast, you should be thinking velocity. Make sure that you have the direction right and then go, you know, pedal to the metal and go as fast as you can uh, and then you'll be all right. Yes, it was just a great reminder of the strategy and it reminded me of a story I heard years ago about these two friends that were driving in the car and <laughs> they were lost. They, these two, you know, of course it was two guys who refused to stop and ask directions and this is before <laughs> we all had the smartphones. And one of them said, yeah, we were lost, but we were making really good time. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so this is again, almost too simple, but I see it in so many books where this is discussed. And you know, companies spend a fortune on research, okay? And uh, research companies do uh, good work. They can do it. And sometimes I think people, uh, marketers are taking refuge in the fact that they paid for an expensive research report. <laughs> but why do you recommend engaging in conversations with maybe five or six people in your target audience before doing any of that? And why do so few companies even want to do that? So there, I think there are two elements to your question. Let me answer the, the, the second question, the second part first, that why do, why do people jump straight into doing, you know, quantitative research? Why? Because they want to go fast. That's why. Because mm -hmm. they don't want to sort of take the time to do it right, necessarily. I mean, not saying that they are willfully doing it wrong, but they just sort of say, let's, let's launch our, you know, 10,000 strong survey tomorrow or next week, as soon as we can. So the reason I suggest that talk to some a few customers in advance, maybe in a different format, maybe in a personal basis, maybe over a phone call, maybe in a focus group, is that those conversations will actually help you frame the bigger survey instrument that you might be after. So that's that's one reason why you should proceed your your big online survey that's going to go out to you know ten thousand people with some conversations with a handful of customers, 5, 10, 20 people, whatever makes sense. So that's one. But there's a bigger point I, I make in the book, which is that sometimes, and often actually, especially in a B2B environment, you don't have 10,000 customers to even survey. So, you know, you talk about sampling. Well, your, your whole company's uh, universe might consist of 120 customers. So how do you send out the survey instrument to 10,000 people? You don't, you cannot. So in those cases, which is typical of B2B situations, my suggestion is that have engaging and in-depth and free-flowing conversations with your customers. And you don't need even 120. Talk to 10 people and you learn exactly how your market is behaving and what your customers are feeling. But again, it, you you have to have the right kind of conversation. It has to be a conversation. It should not be, okay, question number one, question number two, question number three. Tell us what Let you want. People, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Let people talk. Most people love to talk. So steer them in the right direction, steer them in the right sort of box, if you will, but let them express their views. And then don't try to correct them either. Don't try to tell them, but you know, you're not using this thing correctly or you haven't plugged this right or if you added this or added that. No, listen, this is your opportunity to learn. This is not your opportunity to sell. Yes. Well, uh, in the remaining time, and I should add, I know you've got a, a flight to catch, but I want to ask you a question from the small M section of the book. And there's so many things. I'm only able to ask a couple of them, but I want to quote from this because I feel, I feel like I've been in this situation as well from... Uh, Page 101, you write, as a professor, I often present my students with a real product from a make-believe company and ask them to develop a business strategy and a marketing plan for it. They then have five minutes to present these to the class. 
Often, in the first generation of their plan, they confidently share that they will, quote, use social media to do their marketing, end quote. And that's it. (laughs) That's the entirety of their marketing plan. They quickly realized that this simplistic recommendation is the shortest way to an F. Professor, why? Because it tells you nothing. It tells me nothing as a professor. If you are a CEO and if your marketing person says, I'll use social media for my marketing in in 2022, that tells the CEO nothing. Frankly, it tells even the marketing person nothing as to what exactly this person needs to do. What, which social media are you going to use? Why? What is the social media going to be used for? Are you going to send a blog? Are you going to send a picture? What is it going to, what is the blog going to say? And why would, why would your customer even care to read? Why would your customer even feel better after having read it? What images are you going to use? So the basics of marketing in terms of your, you know, the four P's and all that, that has to be included even if, even if social media is your dominant uh, channel. But let that lead to the social media. Exactly. I remember being at a university. I know the uh, dean of one business school, and they said, you know, they were rounding up some people like me to say, can you come in and evaluate these business ideas the students have? Probably a similar sort of thing. And I just remember hearing almost the same thing. Oh, we're going to use social media. And? (laughs) Exactly. In in fact, honestly, I mean, I gave the example of, of my classroom, but unfortunately, I hear this... Even in my angel group, you know, when entrepreneurs come in and make a pitch as to why they want to raise money from us, mm-hmm. when it comes to marketing, uh, they have a pretty simple and simplistic answer, oh, we're going to use social media. Yeah. And that usually is a sure shot way of uh, at least my recommendation that you know, we need to pass <laughs> this particular option. Yeah. I mean, you could probably make that decision after you've put away a couple of margaritas anyway. So again, <laughs> yes. just something to think about. So there was another uh, story in here I wanted to tell in our, in our remaining few minutes here. And it made me die a little bit inside because I have been in this situation, and I want to ask you about it. So you write, the company in Southern California hired me as a fractional CMO for a project that was intended to last six to nine months. I scheduled a kickoff meeting on site. The CEO, in his well-intentioned enthusiasm, decided to go above and beyond my agenda by turning the meeting into a two-hour brainstorming session. It went something like this. Today, we're going to brainstorm all the things we can do to Jumpstart marketing at our company, he announced. He then proceeded to go around the room and have each person share their own laundry list of ideas. Like, let's do trade shows. Let's send out an email blast. Let's create fun videos on Instagram. Let's send coupons by snail mail. And you write, like any good brainstorming session, people mention anything that came to mind. When I was able to get a word in edgewise, I asked, why are we doing this at the kickoff meeting? I just want to get everything out on the table, the CEO replied. This went on for two hours. At the end of it, we had an enormous list of ideas that were all over the map. When I finished, I took the CEO aside. I said, if you think great marketing comes from creating a laundry list of every possible thing that could be called marketing, then you don't need to spend money on me, (laughs) I told him. You can buy a marketing how-to book on Amazon for less than 20 bucks, and it will give you what you're looking for. So what was so interesting to me, uh, Tool, is you write, great marketing is knowing what to do, when, and how to do it. But just as importantly, it's knowing what not to do. Explain. Yeah, in fact, it's, it's such a simple way to make sure that you're not throwing your money into a waste, bus- waste paper basket. And that's by saying that, you know, let's, let's make willful decisions. Let's make 
well thought out decisions as to what we'll do. My whole point, you know, the, what you read from the chapter was that it's not just because you can think it doesn't mean that it's a good idea. So the whole idea should be understand again what your who your customers are, understand how your product or service is going to help them, and then what does good marketing need to do to make sure that that bridge is established. That's all you need to do. Don't throw money away on all the things that you can think of. And again, if you think about it, marketing, all kinds of things that you can do in marketing, okay, you know, in the last 20 years, things have come around because of digital and internet and all that. But if you think about it, any company, if they sat in that conference room and said, okay, let's make a laundry list of all the things we can do, that list is going to be very similar. Okay, mm-hmm. company A, company B, company C, regardless of what industry they are in. Whether yeah, it's and, and companies company, try to, they often copy each other anyway. Right. So, so the, of all, the, all the options that are available to you in marketing, they are not, I mean, you know, we may have added one or two in the last couple of years, but by and large, they are the same that General Motors was using in you know, 1961. Really good marketing happens in knowing which ones of those on the list you should be doing and why, mm-hmm. which obviously means that you'll also know what you are not doing and and why not. So, so that's that's my point. And my whole point is that heck, you don't even have to. In fact, I'm, I think I've said it's in the, somewhere in the book that you don't even have to spend twenty bucks on a book in Amazon. In this very book that you've already bought, I'm giving you a laundry list of things at the back of all the things you can do. So, you know, heck, don't even waste any money on any Amazon uh, list. So the whole idea about the book is about this point here is that it's not about creating a laundry list. It's really about deciding what to do and why. And and by the way, what to do, why, and when, because some of that is also important. Yes, absolutely. But the truth is, listener, you really only need to listen to the Marketing Book Podcast. You know, these books are just gravy. No, I'm kidding. Please go out and buy this book and read it because I don't think it'll help all the people I talked about in the beginning. There's a term you use in the book, which I've seen before, which I absolutely love and use all the time. It's called a, a random act of marketing. And remind listeners what a, mar- a random act of marketing is. And how do you know specifically if your business is suffering from or about to experience the ill effects of one? So, this idea of random act of marketing actually came to me, uh, and I described the story when I was uh, in a major corporation, and we had a musician come in and give us a leadership uh, talk. A musician, a conductor, giving us a leadership talk. So think of uh, of, uh, of uh, random act of marketing this way. Let's assume that you decided uh, correctly that you need to do these five tactical things in 2022. Uh, you know. You're going to advertise here. You're going to go to these three trade shows. You're going to hold webinars. You're going to advertise on LinkedIn or whatever your marketing plan is. Okay, and let's assume that it was well done. It was done, uh, you know, precisely, and and you also have great confidence in the execution uh, of your uh, of these things by your marketing team or any agencies you might be using. So let's assume sort of the best of everything. Okay. They are the right things to do. They've been well thought out and they're going to be executed well. The analogy I use is if you think of uh, going back to Pink Floyd again. So the way music is recorded is that you record different instruments 
and then you piece them together. That's what a recording engineer does, right? You know, you, there'll be vocals, there'll be uh, guitars, there'll be drum sets, there'll be you know, trombone and all those kinds of things. And then you piece them together. So assuming that each of the musicians is highly qualified, well-respected, and they were in the right frame of mind with or without margaritas or, <laughs> or stronger. See, I got you thinking they, about that now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they recorded everything very well. So let's let's again assume that every every tactic that you had planned is being done well, is being executed well. The only problem is the person who is putting it all together is timing it off a little bit. In other words, when the drums are supposed to come, they're off by a second or two. Mm -hmm. When the guitars are supposed to be coming, it's off by a second or two. So even though every single instrument was well recorded, well played, but the output that you will get in terms of the whole song sheet or the whole song is going to be less than optimal. And that's what happens when you do random acts of marketing. And that's assuming that you're doing everything right. <laughs> right. So, so what you have to do is make sure that like an, like an orchestra conductor might, that everything, every musician is playing things well, but they're also playing it in conjunction with each other at the right time. Yes, and the analogy of the music conductor was excellent, and it also brought to mind another idea of when you see these random acts of marketing, it throws off the customer, even if it's in their subconscious, and it can be like a Hollywood movie continuity error, <laughs> where you start to see things like, wait a minute, that well, how did they change shirts uh, in the in the same scene, you know, or something like that, where it just starts to to throw people off. So I realize we're, we're almost out of time and uh, you've got a flight to catch and I don't want to be responsible for you being late to getting frisked by TSA. So let me ask you about this one other very interesting chapter. You talk about fake ROI. You survey a bunch of marketers and they'll say, oh, proving our ROI. It's one of the top things. I see it all the time. And you write, we're all obsessed with ROI. That's no secret. We want to make the best use of our dollars and we believe ROI is a simple but effective way to make good business decisions. As Peter Drucker once said, what gets measured gets managed. And I want you to explain this. You say, unfortunately, we have somehow extended Peter Drucker's pithy wisdom to a false corollary of what can't be measured is not worth managing or doing. Talk about the pitfall there. Yeah, so I'll give you an example, which I mentioned in the book as well. So if, if you're familiar with with California and San Francisco Bay Area, you know, there's a there's a very well used road called Route 101 between San Francisco and San Jose. Of course, the, the 101 runs up and down the state, but I'm going to talk about this 50 50 odd miles between San Francisco and San Jose. And the, usually, the 50 miles takes anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours, depending on traffic. To go 50 if miles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, it's a it's a well trafficked road. And, you know, being California, they cannot expand the roads too much because, heck, uh, you know, it's already built up. It's it's one of the denser parts of the country. So when you go down this highway or go up this highway in either direction, you'll see close to a dozen, maybe more on either side, uh, Apple billboards, huge Apple billboards. I mean, the billboards which are, you know, Texas size, you know, even though they are in California. And most of them are used for iPhone advertising, you know, it'll typically say shot on iPhone and they'll have customer photographs that some, you know, 
great customers have taken some great photographs and they showcase those images on these billboards. So my point here is that we get so obsessed with ROI and we choose not to do things just because we cannot measure ROI. So the reason I give this Apple billboard example is, how, do you think Tim Cook has any idea how <laughs> many more iPhones are being sold because of those, bill, those billboards? Do you think he even has a reasonable chance of estimating the incremental number of iPhones sold because of that one or 20 billboards? Yeah. No, he doesn't. But why is he doing it? Why is he spending millions of dollars? I mean, yes, it's a rich company, but it's a very smart company. Yeah, they probably know what they're doing. They probably know what they're doing. The reason they're spending money on billboards is because they recognize that the traffic is only going to get worse and is getting worse. And more and more people whether they are iPhone users or not, are spending time on that highway, okay? And the, the reason I mentioned whether they are iPhone users or not is because that also helps them decide what they're going to advertise. So they're showing iPhones. Obviously, you might say, well, if, I'm, if, if, if an iPhone user is stuck in traffic and looking at an iPhone commercial or an iPhone billboard, it's not doing much. But heck, they are showing a billboard of what an iPhone can do shot on iPhone. So even if you are an iPhone user, you have some interest in knowing what your phone that's sitting in your car can is capable of doing. And if you're not an iPhone user, then of course, it tells you what an iPhone can do. So what I'm saying is all this thinking has gone into deciding A, we should have billboards over there and B, what we should put on the billboard. Because that way we'll get both iPhone users and non-iPhone users and have some positive impact on, on, on both categories. And yes, we will not know how many more iPhones we sold because of those billboards, but that's okay. Yes, uh, just to underscore that, you're right. I want to make it clear I'm not opposed to ROI. <laughs> I'm an engineer. Yeah, I'm you're an engineer. an engineer. Thank you. For once, I didn't have to say it. But when it can be reasonably connected to a campaign, ROI is great. However, sometimes you have to pursue that right brain intuition in your marketing, creating and promoting the vision and message of your company in ways that might not be so easy to measure. Indeed, if you insist on attaching clear ROI to everything your marketing team does, you're going to miss out on some really effective and creative ways to build brand visibility. So there's other chapters on uh, data and the mythology of trying to, the mythology and idiocy of trying to crack the code on Google. It, it's just, it's all true, people. And another section on automation about how automation often accelerates a bad process to begin with. It reminded me of the, uh, the notion in advertising where nothing kills a bad product faster than really great advertising. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and instead, a lot of times, it's uh, automation is not the problem. It's your process. And then just so the listener knows, there's a whole section on tools, why we're obsessed with tools, the folly of it, why you probably don't need one more tool. There are about 8,000 of them software tools out there now. But I want to ask one last question about the book before we close out. And that's from the very last chapter on in chapter 19. And I, I loved it. And it is, is it relates to getting, you know, uh, marketing providers for your company, services like from a company like ours or, or any number of these different people that are all kind of blended out there. Explain why you have this sentence. To a hammer, everything is a nail. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And I think it's a good summary of what this chapter is about. So, as business owners, 
uh, we rely on different providers. So, you know, there's a market research firm or an SEO firm or a website company firm or some a company that manages your billboards or outdoor advertising or somebody who does your trade show events and, and whatnot, right? My experience is that most companies, even though, even though they are specialists, they'll claim to do overall marketing strategy for you. So if you're a B2B company, a mid-sized company, and uh, you know you don't have a full-fledged marketing department of yourself, so you, you get tempted, oh yeah, let me hire this SEO f- firm because they'll offer to do an overall strategy for me as well, which could be very useful. The only problem is that if you are an SEO firm, very likely, almost guaranteed, that one of the things you will recommend as part of your overall strategy is you need to do better SEO. If you are a web developing company that's doing an overall strategy for your client, uh, surprise, surprise, you should need a new website. <laughs> have I got a website for you? Yeah. Exactly. So you have to be ve- if you're a business owner, if you are a CEO, you have to be very careful in who you ask for what. So in other words, don't ask any specialist to do an overall strategy because you're really not going to get an overall strategy. Hammer is going to keep looking for a nail till he or she finds one or pretends to have found one. Yeah, so that's a great idea to ask. What Tell us about your business. What is it that you do uh, primarily? Let's see. Let me just quote from page 187. Watch for and weed out self-serving marketing providers who overstate their abilities and claim to take a holistic view of your business situation without any credibility or experience to back it. Instead, look for an experienced marketing professional who has the years and scars to take a holistic approach and has only your interests in mind when making any recommendations. So, Atul, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Good question. And, you know, true to form as an engineer, I'll give you two instead of one. (laughs) Well, and just to be fair, it's not a fair question. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, I think if there's one takeaway or two two related takeaways I'll give your audience is that marketing is really too important to be dismissed by any CEO in any business. Mm -hmm. So, regardless of how bad your your experiences have been thus far, it's far too important for you to ignore it or to dismiss it. And there's a second related point I want to uh, have your listeners take is that great marketing can be done in spite of your bad experiences. In fact, the whole book is about how and why the bad experiences happen and how to avoid them in the future. So th- th- those will be my two big takeaways from uh, from today's talk and the book. Excellent. And that also brings to mind the idea of the shampoo. I, I, I read this a while, that beginning of the book a while back, and I've already used that expression a couple times. The first time I used shampoo, someone would say, it got in my eyes and I don't like it, so I'm not going to use it anymore. <laughs> it's like, well, wait a minute. It, there's, there's more to it than that. Your answer also brings to mind David Packer's famous quote of marketing is too important to be left to the marketing department. Very true. Which is not to say you don't need a marketing department, but it, it's more than just what those folks can do for you. So yeah. it was yeah. true then. It's, it's, it's even more true now, I think. Well, what's one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book that we've talked about or just to get them kind of committed to doing something moving in the right direction until the book arrives? Okay. So I'll give you something that they can really do today. I mean, otherwise, it's not a, a you know, yeah, I wish I could. Look into what you're doing for marketing in your company, okay? And see if, and be honest to yourself, you don't have to tell anybody else. Answer the question, 
are you doing any random acts of marketing? Mm. Because that's a very easy thing to do. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to read anything. You just have to introspect. You just have to look at your own marketing plan and see, are, are they well-coordinated? Have you th- or are you running out of a laundry list or did you make the choice? And mm-hmm. are they linked to each other? Is your blog coming out is your blog on a certain topic coming out at exactly the same time where the event, the trade event is happening so that the two can reinforce each other? You know, whatever, whatever you're thinking is, make sure that there is that thought, that thought process reflected in your marketing plan. So check on whether you're doing random acts of marketing or not. That is such excellent advice. And just from a personal standpoint, I was reading through your book and we didn't get to talk about this section, but it was about that. Is this related to anything? Is it helping us? Is it doing anything at all for us? Guess what I did this week? We got rid of our Facebook page. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. doing absolutely nothing. Yep. We weren't even checking it. It had very low reach, like 1%, and it had even lower engagement. It was like, you know, nothing against Facebook, but this is not how we get customers. It was sort of like to show, we got a Facebook page, and we put it up, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. So, yeah, and, and actually, I'll give you a personal story on this, Douglas. When when we were launching this book, my publisher also said, you know, we'll help you with LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make it very simple. Go only LinkedIn. No Facebook, no Instagram. And I'm not saying that my audience is not using Facebook or is not using Instagram. Mm-hmm. But when they are using Facebook and when they are using Instagram, they're not in the frame of mind to be reading about marketing and business growth and all that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I said, let's focus only on LinkedIn and uh, kill everything else. Excellent advice. Yeah, I hope they appreciate that advice you were giving them because it would help probably help other No, they uh, did. Yeah, they, they got it right away. Yeah. So looking back, what books have most inspired your working career, Tool? Oh, you mean my physics and engineering books? Yeah, I want to know all <laughs> of them. No, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I mean, like, uh, uh, you know, what books, and they don't have to be business books, but which books have had a, looking back, or, yeah. or represent sort of a milestone, a turning point yeah. for you? Yeah, I'm probably going to miss lots of them because, you know, uh, memory fades over time. But I'm, I'm going to list a handful which have influenced my my marketing career, uh, at least in the last uh, 15 15 years or so. And one of the books that comes to mind is uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm. And I think you kind of alluded to that by Daniel Kahneman. He's one of the very few non-economists to have won the Nobel in economics. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of another thing to his credit. So he wrote this book, which really talked about two brains and uh, thinking fast is is the primal brain and and thinking slow is the rational brain. Uh, so the, the, that 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 concept from that book was was a big influence on me. Mm-hmm. Um, Guy Kawasaki's Art of the Start, uh, even though it's not really a marketing book, but I think it's it's a book about how do you build that bridge that you have an idea and then you have a, you hope that you have some customers. How do you what do you need to do to build that bridge? It's again, like I said, it's more than marketing, but uh, that way of looking at things I think is very very good. Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Um, oh, I don't know sometimes that Sometimes, this, this again relates to the ROI kind of conversation. Sometimes we look for attribution when there isn't done, when there isn't any. So, <laughs> you know, to recognize that sometimes things happen just because things happen. So not every success and not every failure 
can be attributed 100%. So, so that recognition came from that. Uh, the Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, I think that's a very, very positive, healthy attitude that has influenced my entire life, actually. But frankly, his book came much too late. I mean, obviously, I didn't read it until uh, it came out a few years ago. But I, it really resonated with me. And then the last book I will mention is by uh, Patrick Lencioni called Getting Naked. And again, you know, it's not about margaritas or anything like that. It's about uh, being humble. It's about being, um, uh, being self-aware and being willing to share your own understanding. If you, you know, in other words, just because you are a consultant doesn't mean that you know all the answers. So it's okay for you to acknowledge what you don't know. And that is, I think, a very powerful thing explained very well by Patrick. Oh, interesting. Getting Naked, a business fable about shedding the three fears that sabotage client loyalty. I was not aware of that one, and I wasn't aware of Fooled by Randomness, the hidden role of chance in life and in the markets. Yep. Oh, that, very interesting uh, selection. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard of that you're looking forward to seeing? Yeah, I, they're all recent books, um, um, so they are already out there. One book I have admired and really uh, sort of uh, appreciated is a book by David Epstein called Range. So most of us, most of us are led to believe that we need to be specialists. You have to spend 10,000 hours before you can call yourself a specialist in a particular field. I mean, I think that was Malcolm Gladwell who, who said that. Uh-huh. Range takes a different uh, viewpoint. Range says that, yes, you need those specialists, but you also need generalists who know how to piece things together. So the example I can come up with to explain this is that while you have, you know, in, in the medical field, you have very, very super specialized doctors you know, who will specialize only in left shoulder and not in the right shoulder and, and a certain kind of cancer and not the other kind of cancers. Yes, it's great that they can dive deep and become experts in that field, but you still need family physicians who can who can sort of manage the process for you. So this book called Range, I think, is um, is is a good example where it lays out the case for the journalists, people who may not have the in-depth knowledge in any one field, but they know enough about a lot of things who can piece things together for you very well. Mm. So that's one book. The second book I have really used well is called The Persuasion Code. Uh, it's by two authors, two Frenchmen, um, uh, uh, Christophe Morin and Patrick Ramosi. And they, if I were to summarize this, they've basically taken Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which was a book not about marketing, but about how brains work, They've taken that notion and converted it into a practical book for marketeers and for business owners. So the Persuasion Code is another book. And the third book that I recommend, it has nothing to do with marketing, or at least not much, is called False Alarm by Bjorn Lomberg. Uh, he's, a, he's a Danish guy who, who is not a climate denier, but he takes the view that all the things that we are trying to do to fix the climate issue is probably misplaced, or most of the things are being uh, are being are, are misplaced. We, there should be other ways we should be spending our money to make our future better. Hmm. So, so the reason I like this particular book is because it sort of challenges 
the conventional thinking about climate change. So it's not from a climate denier, but it talks against all the things that uh, the greenies, the tree huggers like to talk about. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, one of those books you mentioned, I actually had the honor of interviewing the, uh, one of the authors, The Persuasion Code. How Neuromarketing Can Help You Persuade Anyone, what, Anywhere, and Anytime. Yeah? Oh, what a great uh-huh. book. What a great book. Who, who did you interview? Christoph Moran. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Patrick Renvois. He, he, uh, anyway, it was Moran he, who he goes by. He goes by Patrick Renvoisy, but yeah. Oh, Patrick Renvoisy. Yeah, yeah, that's why I try not to speak French, because you know what? I actually have a number of listeners in France, and I have such respect for their beautiful language. I try not to speak it, and that's why. <laughs> me too, me too. Yeah. But I know Patrick very well. That's why he has oh. put me into his, uh, his last name. So it's actually Ramosé. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, my, uh, this is one more reason. My, my wife and daughter speak French, and this is one more reason that you know, they don't want to take me to France because they were afraid I would start <laughs> trying to speak French. And actually, my French improves as I'm drinking French wine, actually, it doesn't improve, but my perception of my French improves as I'm drinking yes. French wine. Yeah. So, yeah. well, these are great, great books you've mentioned. And at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books you've mentioned, your site, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And to you, listener, please do me a big favor and reach out to a tool in any way you can and thank him for being a guest uh, on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're uh, listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast and your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now. Just one quick final quote. If you came to this book full of frustration at the lack of results you've been getting for your marketing spend, know that you are not alone. In my lifelong career in marketing, I have seen more than my fair share of marketing shenanigans that are nothing short of lies and damned lies. My goal has been to strip away much of the confusion and misguided thinking that leads to such disappointing results. The tips and techniques I have shared in the preceding chapters are meant to provide the insights you need to rise above the frustration, avoid these lies and damned lies, and do real effective marketing with confidence. The book is Lies, Damned Lies, and Marketing. Separate fact from fiction and drive growth. The author is Atul Minosha. Atul, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It was a real pleasure and joy to actually have this very intelligent conversation and hopefully useful conversation for your audience. Thank you. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 